0: So today in uh, this class, it's Friday, so we'll probably get out a little bit early. Uh, But on the agenda, what we're going to cover today is a quick review of the video. So some of you would have seen the video last time. I think most of you stayed. And hopefully if you weren't able to stay, you watched this at home, which was the video on Newton and Experimentum Crucis, his crucial experiment. So we'll review the worksheet that I put on Moodle with some key questions and uh, take that up. So that'll be pretty much the review. But in terms of new materials, today will be sort of our last day of really talking about color and definitions of color and definitions of light and talking about behaviors of light. So we're going to talk a little bit more, clarify some more definitions, give you a couple in there that are, are, you know, good to know, good to memorize, easy to study for, for exams and tests. Uh, And we're also going to talk about something that I mentioned last time, which is called black body radiation. Last time we talked about temperature and temperature being related to color, being related to the color of light in the electromagnetic spectrum that something absorbs or emits. And this is all related to this concept of an idea of a black body and black body radiation. At that point, we'll switch gears a little bit and start to discuss, although it is related, the CIE diagram, the strange-looking sort of shape, half ellipse shape, that gives an index for all colors and that paint companies and other standardized companies use to determine different colors. And finally, we'll end up the lecture on um, a last overview of additive and subtractive mixing processes, some key things for you to know, and a summary and some likely questions that you may get on tests or midterm. So let's start again with Experimentum Cru- Crucis, which was in 1664. Uh, you've seen this quite a few times now. Newton took sunlight, he passed it through a small hole aperture or a slit, basically, Lack collimated the light, sent it, or focused the light, it sent it into a prism, and then it dispersed into all of the colors of the rainbow. On the worksheet that I gave you, I asked a couple of questions. So the first question, it showed a triangle, and it asked you to draw how the light breaks up, um, as Newton would have drawn it in his experiments in his notebook, which would have been in optics. So sketch the path of white light through a prism and label all colors. So I apologize, the colors aren't labeled, but you can see the colors of the lines. And it's showing in this diagram six colors, not seven, which Newton would have got. The seventh being violet, which isn't there. It would be right here, if you could actually draw that. The reason I actually showed you this diagram, and I've given you the web references as well, is it's a nice sight because it gives you actual spacings. You'll see seven inches for the light source to be seven inches away, one inch toward the prism, six inches to the screen. And so if you, if you wish to try this kind of experiment at home, you probably even have a prism or even one of those sort of cube light figures, 3D figures, you can try it and take a look at the distances and this will give you some easy results. So this is basically what's happening in the prism with a dispersion of colors. Now, you'll notice about this that everything is always in the same order. The red appears at the top, and the blue-violet appears at the bottom. Now, this is related. Here's an actual label diagram of how it looks. And this is related to the energy levels of the light that that we're speaking about. If you recall, light is, is a wave. It, it also acts as a particle, but it travels in waves, and depending on the wavelength, or the distance between crests, it has a certain energy. So when these colors are bent through a prism, you can see, as they're going through the prism, red is bent the least, and violet is bent the most. And this is because of the energy uh, be, because of the energy that they all. So the red wavelengths are longer wavelengths, lower energy. The violet wavelengths are higher wavelengths, so they're shorter, shorter distance between peaks, and they're higher energy. And the higher energy light gets bent more when it's moving through a medium such as a prism or another another medium. This is important because Very uh, uh, everyday phenomena, well not so everyday, but frequently seen phenomena like a rainbow. This is exactly what's going on. Raindrops or water vapor in the air act like that prism in a rainbow. So if sunlight is shining and there's a field of water vapor or raindrops, the light is coming in, white light, it's being partially, it's being refracted and then partially reflected so that you see if you were to be standing, with the sunlight behind you, facing, you would see this rainbow. And again, those, those wavelengths of light are being bent based on the relative energy that they have. We'll talk about rainbows and exactly the geometry and where you have to be to see it, etc. Later on um, in the course, when we talk more about natural phenomena. But experimentum crucis is a, a rainbow personified, in, in other words. Okay, part two, second question. Um, Sketch the path of light through two prisms in Newton's experiment. Well, this seems like some busy work. I mean, I'm asking you one prism and then two prisms. What's the importance of this? Newton was really trying to understand light because at the time in the late 1600s, light was not properly understood. In fact, they thought with the prisms that the prism itself caused the coloration of the light. And Newton proved that this wasn't the case. The way he proved this wasn't the case was actually he separated the white light into its colors and then he inserted a second prism in front of that rainbow spectrum of colors and recombined the light again to another screen to become white light. So it looked like this. So you have the beam of white light coming in with the first prism, dispersion happening with the wavelengths being separated out, and then a color prism, another prism inserted with the colors recombining to pr- reproduce the white light. And it may seem elementary to us now, it may seem pretty simple and maybe like he had nothing to do with his time, but it was a really, a, a huge big deal. Um, at the time because he actually proved that color is an inherent intrinsic property of light. Which leads to our next question. Next and last question on the worksheet was what did Newton conclude about the nature of light and color after his experiment which differed from previous thoughts on light and color? I've just basically recapped what he, what he discovered. But he discovered that he thought that light behaved as a particle. He called it a corpuscle or a small body. Um, he thought in order, in, because it was a particle, it must split up into smaller particles and the particles would be different colors, each color of light. So he assumed that light was a particle, which is partially correct. Later on in modern physics in the 1900s, we discovered it was also a wave. So the two key things Newton discovered was that light behaves like a particle in some cases, and that color is an actual physical property of light. And that, in a nutshell, is the importance of the experimentum crucis. Okay, so let's... uh, Turn to our devices, and I'll I'll ask you just a couple of review questions. I'll give you a couple minutes to, or a minute to log in. Let me double check, see how many people are logged in. Okay, we got 60, that's good. Okay, so I'm going to proceed to the question. The first question, uh, we had discussed behaviors of light. And actually, iClicker has a feature that allows you, instead of just selecting multiple choice A, B, C, D, it allows you to um, click on or select an area of your screen. So it allows you to choose places and diagrams. So let's try this out with this. I'm going to ask you to select which of the two diagrams, this one or this one, this is a surface, this is a light ray coming in, which of these two diagrams, and you'll just tap it, um, uh, is representative of the reflection, sorry, the absorption, oh, what am I talking about? Which best represents the absorption of light? This is a pretty straightforward one, but let's just test out how, uh, how iClicker is going to work with this. So let's say target, and uh, let's start. OK, you can see that. So I'll give a couple more um, moments for everybody to get in their answers. Okay, I'm going to close the question now so everybody get in their answers and the correct answer is indeed this diagram here. There we go. That's pretty obvious, right? Absorption just simply means that the energy is absorbed. It's converted to another form, but it's it's absorbed. So Light on this diagram on the other side represents light emission. And when we talk about spectra, we talk about two different types of spectra, absorption spectra or emission spectra. That seemed to work. Let's uh, try one more. Which of the following diagrams best represents the reflection of light? So this is the same thing. This is a surface. Here's incoming light, and these are the behaviors. So which one of these represents reflection? And I'm going to start the polling again. You know, it's early. We have to make the questions a little easy. <laughs> OK give you a couple more seconds to get your answers in so I'm going to close this now and this obviously is the correct answer light is coming to an object, and it is, this is total reflection, sometimes there's partial reflection like a half-silvered mirror, some light passes through, some light is reflected. But in this case of this diagram, this is showing total reflection. And uh, last sort of target question, which of these two pictures would represent uh, something we haven't, which, which we represent the, par- the light property of the behavior of diffraction. So it may be a little hard to see where the pictures delineate, but there's this one over here is one picture and then the black is another picture. So which of these two is, uh, is representative of the diffraction of light? that's good see there's split answers that one may be a little less straightforward So last couple of seconds, I'm going to close this off. So the one that actually represents in, this, in, this, uh, in these two pictures, what represents diffraction? It's actually uh, this one. Kay. And what do I mean by diffraction? So I, s- I graded that. So when I say diffraction, diffraction is something that we talk about, and when you think of diffraction, what you want to keep in your mind, what you want to really think of is waves. Diffraction is usually talked about, it's a property of waves. So when we have diffraction, diffraction basically explains how an incoming wavefront, in this case an incoming wavefront of light, when passed through a small opening, like this, an aperture or a slit how it disperses and slightly bends. The wave fronts are altered by passing through a small passageway or a narrow boundary. That is diffraction of light. Does anybody want to guess what, um, what this property is of light? No guesses? Okay, so this is, this is actually the scattering of light. You can see that light is going in all directions. And when we talk about scattering, there are many different forms of scattering, and you see scattering in the atmosphere all the time. Scattering is when light basically is scattered in all directions off of small particles. So, for example, dust or aerosols, which is small particulate matter in the atmosphere, scatters light quite a bit. Um, and we'll see some natural phenomenon that shows scattering. And in fact, Scattering is one of the principles behind why things like lasers work and and differential lasers for sensing chemical constituents of things. The light is scattered in different ways, and from how it's scattered, we can tell what chemical or element is present. And lastly, we'll do a multiple choice question. Which of the following is not a behavior of light? Okay, last few seconds to get in your response. Okay, I'm going to close it off. And in terms of grading the results, let's grade it. That is correct. C, consumption, uh, is not something that we talk about as a property of light, although light can be absorbed by surfaces, if, if light goes in and doesn't come out, we call that absorption. And it's not just going in and not going out, because if you remember energy and the law of conservation of energy, the law of conservation of energy says energy can neither be created nor destroyed, but changes from one form to another. So when light is absorbed by, say, this tabletop, the energy is converted into some other form of energy. So usually that's heat and one of the things you'll notice too is in the summer they always tell you wear white clothing, white or light clothing, right, because that reflects light whereas black clothing absorbs all the incident light on it and it makes the temperature of the material itself a little bit warmer. So this is why uh, a black surface that's been sitting in the sun would tend to be hotter to the touch than a white surface sitting in the sun. The light's absorbed and converted to heat energy. Get rid of this for now. I think you've seen this everyday behaviors of slide, um, of light slide, uh, for both previous lectures. Let's decompose this a little bit. We talked about all these everyday behaviors of light and there is a big long list, if you remember, of all kinds of different things that light does. But what is important to remember when you're trying to keep this in mind to learn this is that light really, when it's incident upon an object, can do one of three or a combination of any of three things. So light does one of three or any of three things, which are, it's either absorbed, which means the light going in, it goes in, the object absorbs it and converts it into some other form of energy. It is potentially reflected, so you can see these sort of specular highlights. When, when people talk about specular or specular reflections, that means like a highlight, an area where light is bouncing off. And reflection is the bouncing off of light. So light can be reflected. The red light is reflected back into your eye. Or lastly, the light can be in some manner transmitted through the object. So an apple is pretty opaque, and you don't see the light, the light isn't transmitted through the apple. But in other cases, like in the prism, or like slightly translucent or transparent surfaces, the light is transmitted through it, either completely straight in the way that it came in, or bent by a certain angle, just as in the prism where all the colors were bent and dispersed. And this gives rise, these absorption, reflection, and transmission gives rise to all of the other properties, behaviors of light that we talked about in the previous lecture. If you, let me move the iClicker cloud thing so you can see that, but if you're not, um, if you're not entirely sure what each of these things are, how you would define it, uh, don't stress about this, we will be, when we talk about the appropriate phenomenon, going into each one. For now, there's a few that we're dealing with, a few that we've talked about so far. So let's go and uh, quickly make sure that we have the definitions concrete of those behaviors of light that are important to us at this point in the course. So much for transmission of light. Okay. So reflection. Reflection is probably the most straightforward, easy one. There are different modes of reflection. Things can be partially reflected like in a um, police interrogation kind of center where you'd you'd have the person who can see one way through the mirror. It's partial reflection. And things can be totally reflected. So all of the light that hits the object bounces off. That's That's reflection. Refraction. Well, think of the word fraction. Fraction means parts. And refraction is bending. It's a change in the path of the light as it crosses a boundary or it passes through some sort of different boundary. So for instance, if it's passing through the raindrop and being transmitted into the air, there's a certain amount of bending or refraction that occurs in the light. Dispersion is kind of similar to refraction, but dispersion is a phenomenon that we get when we have the colors separating in a prism. So dispersion is the spreading out or the breaking up of visible white light into its constituent colors, into its distinct wavelengths. Diffraction, that was the diagram that we saw with the wave front coming in. Diffraction is how a light wave is basically spread out by passing through a, a small opening, an aperture or a slit. If you uh, recall, um, probably, I think it probably would have been covered in in grade 10 physics, but there's the famous double slit experiment of light which showed the dual wave particle nature of light because what had happened was light was passed through two slits and it basically passed through both of them simultaneously, so we knew it couldn't be a particle because it was a particle it would go through one or the other, but it worked as a wave. So diffraction, when you think of diffraction, think of the double-slit diffraction experiment. Think of some opening and a wave passing through it. And finally, scattering, which was that other diagram that we showed, which was the black diagram with the rays of light coming out in every direction. Scattering is when a light ray is, is basically bent or scattered in all directions by some sort of particle, molecule, atom, what have you, aerosol. So these definitions are, you don't have to memorize them word for word, but as long as you remember what we're talking about and how it applies to the natural phenomena, um, I'm not going to ask you a definition word for word, but I could ask you something on a midterm like what's the difference, in a multiple choice format that is, between, say, scattering and diffraction. So these are are good things to keep in mind. And then finally, divergence. We haven't talked really about divergence yet. And divergence comes into play again when we have things like lasers. We talked about light as traveling in rays. It travels in straight lines, and you can see a light ray coming through the clouds, So a ray of light, if you think of a spotlight, if there were a spotlight shining down, it would make a circle around me on the floor. The divergence of a ray of light, or a source of light, is basically how wide that light source is, how wide the rays spread. So if I had a very diverging, a very thin beam, which would be diverging very little, it would have a circle around me like this if i had an extremely divergent beam of light as a spotlight it would have a bigger circle around me much further out and divergence is really it's really quite important when you are when you're working with lasers you don't want your beam to be too divergent and we'll get into that later so hopefully that all is somewhat clear and of course It doesn't like me playing with the eye clicker. So now that we have our behavior definitions down straight, let's go back and talk about spectra a little bit. Because after all, spectra are the maps, the road maps, the fingerprints of every element and how it absorbs or emits light, how light behaves in its presence. So far we have talked about three types of spectra. We've talked about continuous spectra, emission spectra, and absorption spectra. Continuous spectra, if you remember I showed you some diagrams that have this full rainbow range of colors. So the study of spectra and spectral properties is called spectroscopy. It's extremely useful in all of the sciences. Um, When we have a continuous spectrum, in terms of taking a spectral picture of something, this just means that all the colors of light are present in continuous amounts. If you were to draw a graph, it would be smooth. It wouldn't be jerky and sort of moving up and down in different places. So the continuous spectrum is just all of your rainbow colors. Now this is showing you a light bulb here, and it's showing you the light bulb going through a prism and the color coming into your eye. But this is what you would see. I mean, your eye is not a spectrograph, but it does its best. And a continuous spectrum, mostly all of the colors of light would be present in, say, an incandescent light bulb with most of the, pre- the colors being in the, red, in the yellow-green area of the spectrum. So what's an emission line spectrum then? We know continuous spectrum is everything. An emission line spectrum, I don't think you can see this very well because it's really pixelated, but this is supposed to be, it says hot gas, but it's supposed to be the sun. So anything that is emitting light, uh, the sun is undergoing fusion all the time, it's emitting light and it is mainly hydrogen and helium and it has very distinct emission lines. So if you were to look at the sun or put it through a spectroscope, spectrograph, you would see that, notice the background is black, right? So that means that all of that light is not there. The lines are the specific wavelengths at which the sun is emitting light. And that is our characteristic emission line spectrum. When you get into um, specifics in looking at gases, you can actually look at the gases in a lab and you can easily identify, say, the noble gases, helium or hydrogen, When you take a look at the bands that they generate in an emission spectrum, it's very, very clear, it's very distinct, easily identifiable, quite interesting. When we're talking about an absorption spectrum, you can think of that as the opposite of the emission spectrum. So you see that continuous spectrum in the background. It means all the light is present. But you'll notice in these, in certain areas, there are black lines. And that is where the light is being absorbed by the substance. Well, so what is useful in understanding color? For our purposes, I mean, we're probably not going to go into a crime lab and determine chemical constituents of evidence, nor are we about to, like, look at different spectral photographs of stars. What about, what's useful from this? We can actually make graphs or curves with these different spectra and the different patterns and the lines that tell us really clearly what colors things are. See if I can get... So if you recall, I think on the first day of class, I said we'd learn to draw a spectral curve or a spectral diagram that would tell us what color something is and what shade something is, how gray it is, how white it is, how black it is. So a color spectrum typically is a graph, so it has a Y, or vertical axis, and an X, or horizontal axis. And on the Y axis, we typically take the intensity of light. So intensity of light would be 0% to 100%. And then, since we are graphing a spectrum, What we have at the bottom as the x-axis is that continuous spectrum of colors, all the way from red to violet. And depending on the peaks, so let's say we had red here, green here, and violet here. So if we had something that was green, we could potentially see that there'd be a peak in this green level. And we talked about linear spectra last time. When you have a very high and dense peak, that's what a linear spectrum is. We're going to go into this today a little bit more in depth. So let's see how we actually do that. And what do these actually look like? That is a really fake example. I mean, if you, most things are com- have so many combinations of colors that it's really almost impossible to distinguish with your eyes. When we say, oh yes, let's look at a green, here's a green, but if I were to try and describe a green in nature like this, it wouldn't be as straightforward. What do those emission and absorption spectra look like? Here we have a light source showing you, and this shows you the different kinds of spectra that we get. So with a continuous spectrum, you remember that was all of the colors. That's when all of the light is present. So a continuous spectrum is like this one up here at the top. It's a smooth line showing you that from violet to red, pretty much every color of light is present with a high intensity. if we were to look at an emission line spectrum, what would that look like? Remember we're talking about an object emitting at very sharp, distinct wavelengths. So taking our diagram as well with the intensity on the y-axis and the colors on the x-axis, an emission line spectrum looks like a series of sharp peaks. And these are all the wavelengths that this light source is emitting. Finally, an absorption line spectrum, remember that's where the light is being absorbed. So take a look at this continuous spectrum, and those dark black lines are where light's being absorbed. And it actually looks like that in our graph of the spectrum. If you recall that this is intensity, you'll see that smooth line but certain wavelengths of light are missing. They are being absorbed by the material. Is that, does that make sense somewhat? Okay, if it doesn't make sense, we'll clarify it a little further on. So I did a rough drawing on the board, but let's take a look in more detail about how we draw and read spectral curves. So as we said, we need two axes, a vertical and a horizontal axis, the x-axis and the y-axis. On the vertical axis or the y-axis, we have the intensity of the incoming light. And there are different units. And often if you look at a textbook or you look at any spectroscopy materials, you'll see units of watts per steradian per… it's, it's very… Um, the units just have to do with intensity. So for our purposes, anytime you see uh, a spectrum with strange power units, think of it just as intensity as a percentage from 0 to 100%. Next, on the x-axis, we have our wavelength. And I think I actually, I drew this backward. I drew it kind of um, moving up getting shorter and shorter wavelengths, but a lot of the spectra that you'll see have the violet over here and the red over here, so 700 to 400 moving down. It really doesn't matter as long as you clearly state which is which. So in this case, we have these colors moving this way with red at 400 nanometers. If you remember that wavelengths are measured in terms of nanometers. So it's 1 by 10 to the minus 9 meters, so a billionth of a meter, and that's the length between crests. So we have red, violet. And so how would we draw something in this? Well, does anybody have any ideas how we might draw? A, remembering what a continuous spectrum looks like, which is all of the light, how might we draw a very, very pure, pure white, bright white light source? Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So we have just a straight line because all the colors are within the light. So you're getting all equal amounts of all colors and a very high amount. I've drawn the intensity to pretty much 100%. So if that's a white line, how would we get a very, very dark, dull black line on our spectrum? Remembering that black is the absence of all light. So we'd have, all the colors will be there because it's just white at a lower intensity. So we will have colors, but it will be almost at an imperceptible, very, very low intensity. And finally, what might a medium, if we know that white is a straight line at the top, black is a straight line at the bottom, what would the medium, a medium gray spectrum look like? Want to just shout it? Yeah, in the middle, exactly. So that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward, right? That's pretty simple. So it gets complicated when things are, are composed of many different colors or when they have one dominant wavelength that kind of overshadows the other. Let's take a look at that. How would we draw a bright, pure yellow? So we talked about linear spectra. In my fake green spectrum over here, we have it being a peak. And the same is kind of true if you want to draw any color. Now, most colors will be a mix of several different um, wavelengths of light. But if we want a really, really pure yellow, well, let's say yellow is around here, this line in wavelengths. And so we're going to have something that is uh, a very sort of steep, linear uh, curve here, linear spectrum. So it's linear because it's singling out the yellow and the curve is, is steep and thin. So that, that seems to follow. So when we will get into drawing more gray like colors. What if you wanted to make the yellow kind of a muddy yellow, muddy yellow gray? How would this be different? Yes. You could put it towards green a bit. Um, remember that we talked about different um, properties of color. And we said that there are three ways that we describe color. Hue, which is just the color it is, like yellow, green, but we also have saturation, which is how pure the color is. We also have value, which is how bright or dark the color is. So with, when I'm saying, see this shows the ambiguity when you're talking about colors, I could say muddy yellow and you may imagine a completely different yellow than I'm imagining. I meant a more gray yellow. So if we have a more gray yellow, this peak will still be here. But instead of these edges of the graph being down here with zero intensity, it'll be more like a medium gray. So it'll start like this, have the peak, and continue with a medium gray over here. Okay. Before we get into drawing different kinds of spectral curves for different colors, uh, we have to understand a little bit more about the relationship between the electromagnetic spectrum and temperature. And this is something that we call black body radiation. So so far in the course, I have talked about uh, a color that is kind of is loosely related to a temperature. That's true, but that's not all of it. That's a very, very, very simplified version of the way reality actually works. And the way that reality works was thought to be, um, was thought of almost wrong up until the 1900s. And the reason why this is, so you can see these curves, right? You can see kind of like a red curve here at 3000 Kelvin. Remember our units of temperature that we talk about are Kelvin based on absolute zero instead of being based on boiling and freezing points of water. So each of these nice sort of continuous curves has a peak and that peak determines the color that they're seen as emitting or absorbing. So the 3000K is red, 4000K is green here, and the 5000K is blue. And that makes sense because remember that red is the longest wavelength, lowest energy, therefore the temperature is lower. Blue is the shortest wavelength, highest energy, so the temperature is much higher. Note here that we have the ranges of light. Remember that colors are things that we only see in our visible spectrum of light, which is perceived by the human eye, which is approximately 400 to 700 nanometers. Longer wavelengths than color are called the infrared, that of visible light, infrared light, and higher wavelengths are called UV light. So when people were trying to figure out how all of this worked, I'll go back to this in a second, there were problems because there was an idea of a relationship between temperature and a relationship between the colors, but it didn't hold true, and we'll see why that is in a second. First of all, let's talk about black body radiation. What is a black body? Black body here is our, is our theoretical object. It is important to note that this is not a real object. You can make an approximation of a black body, but nothing behaves exactly like this beautiful theoretical concept of a black body. Why is that? Well, what it's defined to be, what a black body is, is a body that will absorb all of the incident radiation upon it it also emits radiation but nothing behaves in nature so cleanly. now we've talked about our temperature and in terms of temperature and color being related we have assumed without knowing it because I haven't mentioned it before we've assumed that everything acts as a black body everything absorbs all the incident radiation upon it, and emits that radiation (coughs) in a sort of continuous spectrum. So why is that important? Well, around the time of Newton, when he was determining that light acts like a particle, we really didn't have any clue (coughs) exactly how light worked. Black body theory tries to define how light works. It predicts, based on how the black body absorbs the radiation, what temperature it should be at. That's pretty simple, right? I mean, you know you're emitting a, a, absorbing a certain amount of radiation you expect to emit at another temperature. What was the problem with this? The problem was that it predicts infinite temperature. If you get smaller and smaller and smaller wavelengths, The temperature goes higher and higher and higher and higher. So if you had something really small, like nanometers, you'd expect the temperature to be off the scale. And we know that this doesn't actually happen this way in nature. And the reasons behind that are kind of complex. But let's take a look at these curves once more. As a human being, typically our body temperature is about 37 degrees Celsius. That corresponds to 310 degrees Kelvin. So we don't glow, fortunately, because we're not that, uh, that hot to generate any visible light. But the sun does glow. The sun's um, temperature of the photosphere is approximately 5200 degrees Kelvin. And in comparison, your household light bulb is anywhere between 2700 Kelvin and 3500 Kelvin. That 2700 is an incandescent bulb in which you have a tungsten filament and the metal is being burned off of it, or fluorescent where you have a hot gas basically interacting in a cell. So black body radiation, here are some curves that we see once again. But because we thought light acted like a particle, it therefore must be continuous. It must have a continuous spread of energy and temperature relations, which meant as you went to lower and lower and lower wavelengths approaching zero, you'd get higher and higher and higher and higher and higher values, typically, of that power. And that does not happen. As you see, so everything in the UV, that area where we have really small wavelengths, it predicted that the UV temperatures would be insanely high and that was called, it didn't fit with, with life and life experience, so the theory was obviously wrong of how light behaved and that was called the UV catastrophe. So again, as the object's wavelength decreases, its temperatures increases. There was a certain law to calculate that. That was called the Rayleigh-Jean's Law, and it was found to be actually wrong. And that was replaced later on by a law called Wien's Displacement Law, and also by uh, Max Planck. And we'll talk about that in a second, but it's better for me to show you a video with some more graphical explanations of this than just trying to put this through to you without showing you equations and and too many things. So let's take a look quickly at this video. This is about eight minutes or so.
1: This is the question that's plagued physicists for centuries. What exactly is light? When we talked about this earlier, we came to the conclusion that light is a wave which it is. Or at least, light behaves like a wave when you use it in certain experiments. So for most of the 19th century, it seemed like the question had been settled. Physicists agreed, light is a wave. Then, new discoveries made them start to question that. They started getting more and more clues that light could also behave like a particle, which led to the strange concept that light was both a particle and a wave. This kick-started the development of a little something you might have heard of, called quantum mechanics. important clues that light had to be more than just a wave was what's known as the ultraviolet catastrophe and that name really isn't an exaggeration the ultraviolet catastrophe was disastrous for conventional thinking about the physics of light we've talked about how objects radiate heat Specifically, the amount of heat they radiate over time is proportional to their temperature raised to the fourth power. But there's more going on there than just heat. Objects actually radiate energy that covers a whole range of frequencies on the electromagnetic spectrum, all different kinds of light. Now, there's this thing called a blackbody, which is basically the idealized version of a radiating object. No true black bodies exist, but in theory, they absorb all incoming light without reflecting any and radiate energy accordingly. Not all the energy coming from a black body has the same intensity. You can predict the intensity of the energy coming from a black body, or black body radiation, based on its temperature. But when physicists came up with an equation for this intensity, using the idea that light is a wave, they ran into a big problem. The equation they came up with, known as the rayleigh jeans Law, predicted that the higher the frequency of the radiation, and therefore the shorter the wavelength, higher the intensity, and that matched up with experimental results really well, but only to a point. Once the frequency of light got into the ultraviolet range or higher, the Rayleigh-Jeans law didn't fit the results of experiments at all. Instead, experiments showed that black bodies had a peak intensity based on their temperature. At a certain frequency, the light would be at its most intense, and after that, the intensity would actually drop as the frequency increased. The warmer the object, the higher the frequency of the peak intensity, but there was always a peak. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Even worse, if you summed up the contributions of higher and higher frequencies to the total power emitted by a black body, the Rayleigh-Jean's law predicted that you'd find infinite power, which contradicts the principle of conservation of energy. This was the ultraviolet catastrophe. Something was clearly wrong about the way physicists were thinking about light. As far as they knew, intensity was only supposed to keep getting stronger as the frequency got higher. So what were they missing? The catastrophe was resolved using the equation derived by German physicist Max Planck, an equation that basically led to the entire field of quantum mechanics. The equation known as Planck's law was actually very simple, but the concept it was based on was very new. Planck's law says that electromagnetic energy takes the form of tiny discrete packets called quanta. In other words, at a certain point, you can't divide energy into any anything smaller than these packets. And the energy of each quantum is equal to the frequency of the light times a very small number called Planck's constant represented by the letter H. If you take Planck's law into account when you try to predict the intensity of blackbody radiation, you end up with an equation that predicts the experimental results perfectly, including those weird peak intensities. So the ultraviolet catastrophe was resolved. But now there was this whole new idea that had physicists rethinking everything. Energy could only exist in discrete packets, quanta. Before, physicists thought energy was a kind of continuous flow. But it turned out that at a certain point, you couldn't divide up energy into smaller amounts. And our old friend Einstein played a big part in reworking physics using this new information. And he won a Nobel Prize for it in 1921. Einstein argued that light energy travelled in packets that we now call photons which would essentially make light behave like a particle. Which was weird, because remember, there have been lots of experiments that showed that light behaved like a wave. But Einstein suggested a way to prove whether light travelled in these discrete packets, an experiment involving the photoelectric effect. The photoelectric effect describes what happens when you shine a beam of light on a metal plate. Electrons leave the plate and hit a nearby collector, creating a current. Einstein realised that by studying the way the electrons left the plate, Physicists can learn a lot about the properties of light. Because both the wave theory and the particle theory of light predict that light knocks electrons out of the metal. But each theory has a different explanation of why this happens and different predictions when it comes to the details of the experiment. Wave theory says that when a light wave hits an electron, it exerts a force on the electron that ejects it from the metal. According to this theory, if you increase the intensity of the light, you increase the strength of the electric field hitting the electrons. So you eject more electrons, and these electrons have a higher speed and achieve a higher maximum kinetic energy, which is the kinetic energy of the fastest moving electrons leaving the plate. One important thing to note here is that according to wave theory, the frequency of the light shouldn't make a difference, only the intensity matters. Particle theory, on the other hand, says that electrons get ejected from the metal when they're hit by individual photons. The photon transfers its energy to the electron, which pops out of the metal, and the photon is destroyed in the process. But there's a minimum energy that the photon needs to transfer in order to get the electron to overcome its attraction to the metal and pop out. That minimum energy is called the work function, W0. If the photon has less energy than the work function, then the electron won't go anywhere. But if the photon has more energy than the work function, then some of the photon's energy will be used up to tear the electron away from the metal and the rest will give the electron kinetic energy. And some electrons will be more strongly attracted to the metal than others. But the electrons with the maximum kinetic energy will be the ones that took the bare minimum amount of energy to separate from the metal. So according to particle theory, we can say that the energy of the photon is equal to the work function W0 plus the maximum kinetic energy. And the energy of the photon is also equal to Planck's constant times the frequency. This equation tells you that if you increase the frequency of the light, the maximum kinetic energy of the electrons should increase accordingly. And if you go below a certain frequency, F0, where Planck's constant times F0 would be equal to the work function, then you're not going to eject any electrons at all. This means that increasing the intensity of the light increases the number of electrons ejected, but it doesn't affect their maximum kinetic energy. So if you want to know whether the wave theory or the particle theory is right, all you have to do is try a few simple tests. Is there a cutoff frequency below which electrons aren't ejected from the metal, no matter how long you wait? What happens when you raise the frequency higher. And when you increase the intensity of the light, does that affect the maximum kinetic energy of the ejected electrons? Turns out there is a cutoff frequency, and the higher the frequency is above the cutoff, the higher the maximum kinetic energy is of the electrons. And sure enough, increasing the intensity of the light only affects the number of electrons ejected. It doesn't change their maximum kinetic energy. The results of all these tests with the photoelectric effect match up with the predictions of the particle theory of light, so photons really exist. Light travels in discrete packets, And behaves like a particle. But what about all those other experiments that showed light behaving like a wave? Well the thing is, light can behave like both. In certain circumstances it can behave like a particle, in others it can behave like a wave. This is called the wave particle duality. When it comes to the physics of the very small, your intuitive understanding of the world just doesn't apply. You can't describe things like light using the concepts you're used to that work on a larger scale. When you're trying to explain something totally outside the way you've directly experienced the world, you're going to run into some brain-bending physical and the discovery of Planck's law, along with the idea that light energy travelled as discrete packets, turned into the foundation for the concepts and equations that we use to analyse the behaviour of the very small. And the field of physics which studies how quanta behave is what we call quantum mechanics. Today you learned about the ultraviolet catastrophe and how it was resolved by Planck's law. We also talked about photons and how the photoelectric effect proves the particle nature of light. Finally, we discuss the wave particle duality. Crash Course Physics is produced in association with PBS Digital Studios. You can head over to their channel to check out a playlist of the latest from amazing shows like PBS Space... Okay.
0: She talks really, 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 really fast. <laughs> okay, so we did talk about... Uh, that, that's the ultraviolet catastrophe. Um, I was looking for sort of a video that was a little bit more graphical, but that was one of the best ones that I could find, because without sort of knowing the history and and knowing all the modern physics that goes into that, it's a difficult concept to explain. Um, We will be talking, don't worry that all you need to know for this course, if I'm asking you in tests and questions, I'm not going to ask you about um, the Rayleigh-Jean's law, what that was, and Planck's constant, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Just know that the basic relation that existed in terms of light and temperature, the way that that energy and temperature were related in the early 1900s turned out to be wrong. And it was Max Planck, who was a very famous physicist, who gave us this this idea of quantum mechanics, who gave us the idea of photons, that when light is emitted or absorbed, that is all done by photon transfer. So if you think of an atom, again like a nucleus with neutrons and protons in the center, and electrons orbiting around it like a solar system, whenever energy is exchanged, the electrons either they may jump up certain orbital levels, they may be bumped out further out of the atomic solar system, or they may come back in closer to the nucleus. And whenever that happens, when they go up sort of these steps, there is an emission or an absorption of a photon or a quanta, a discrete packet of light, a small discrete packet of light. Next week, uh, we will be talking about uh, dynamics and the structure of atoms and molecules, and I'll show you uh, how this energy transfer happens, what the photon is, and how it interacts at different levels to give us different colors of light and different interactions. But that will be next week. And also to let you know next week, uh, probably Friday next week, I will be giving out your first assignment. And that's going to be a combination of sort of everything that we've, discovered, we've talked about so far electromagnetic spectrum, it'll probably be some short answer questions and a very small essay. And depending on how far we get on Wednesday with photons, one of the formulas she showed, the E equals HF, in in the video, it's a very simple formula. And kind of getting it like that, rapid fire, doesn't make a lot of sense. But when we talk about photons, I'll be able to show you how that formula works why it makes sense, and accordingly, there may be one or two small calculation questions on the assignment um, asking you about photon energy transfer and what color light you would get if such and such was raised to such a level. Okay. So, questions? Did I see a question? The assignment, it'll be due um, three weeks from when I give it, three weeks. So it'll be in the beginning of February that the assignment is due. Yeah, there'll be, so the last, there's three assignments in total in the course. So I'm going to try and space them evenly. But the first one, I'm going to give you a while with that one because it'll be more comprehensive. The last two will be more on um, pigments and dyes and color. Like understanding how the material process of dyeing and painting and that kind of thing works. Okay, so let's, um, we're about to get to the break right now. Um, I think this is probably a good place to stop. When we come back, we will talk about mixing colors with lights, mixing colors in inks, and also the additive and subtractive color mixing theories. So right now it is 9.35, how about we come back at uh, 9.50, 9.55, let's say. So we had a, a thorough talk about behavior of lights, black body radiation. And to wrap up the light color sort of unit and the definitions, etc. let's talk one last time about additive and subtractive mixtures, color mixtures. In order to really understand the additive and subtractive color mixture process, Um, we have to sort of understand the types of materials that you can associate it with. So when we think of additive color mixtures, remember additive is adding all the colors together to make white. When we're talking about mixing colors together in this way, we can think of additive processes, mixing processes as being done with light. So if you have lights and you mix them together, you add more and more colors until you eventually get white. Let's go take another quick look at how this works and what colors you can sort of create with that. So if we have a light source here, and the light source has, uh, let's see, let's say red, green, and blue um, LEDs to create, remember that a primary color is a set of three colors from which you can create all of the other colors. Now, we typically use red, green, and blue because for our eyes, the cones, which are photoreceptors that detect color in our eyes, are are sensitive to red, green, and blue wavelengths. Okay, so let's look at at this light source. If we emit emit all of the light and just allow it to go onto our screen in a spotlight, we have a white light. That's pretty straightforward. If we were to do the same thing and take a filter that filters out all light, this is the filter here, we block the red, the green, and the blue wavelengths, and so we would get black. We would see nothing on our screen, or we would have a black kind of a pattern here. Now, if we do this with red light, let's say we allow we have a red filter or a red gel, when you talk about lighting in a stage or at a concert, you often use uh, gels or like transparent bits of sort of paper to filter the light or change the light to be a certain color. So if we had a red gel and we, it's a red filter, and we let only the, the red through and block the other two, obviously we would get red on our screen. And the same is true of all of the other primaries. If we allow the green and block the red and blue, we would get green. And lastly, if we allow the blue through and block the other two, we get blue. But that makes sense. All right, so let's take a look at what happens when we have other combinations. If we're doing additive mixtures and we let green and blue through and block the red, remember that we had um, secondary colors. Secondary colors were colors that you mix with primary colors, but that can, can also mix and combine with the primary colors to give you tertiary colors in the color wheel. Our primaries that we use are red, green, and blue. But in the additive system, this is the case. In another system, in the subtractive system, the primaries that we use are different. The primaries are cyan, magenta, and yellow. But it's interesting, you mix certain toge- things together in equal amounts, like green and blue, and you get cyan. So that would be your blue plus green filter, or your cyan filter would be a cyan gel, and you get, with blue and green, cyan light. The same idea if you combine red and blue light, block the green wavelength, you have magenta. And finally, if you block the blue wavelength, and only allow the red and green, which is kind of counterintuitive, although it's probably one of the first color mixtures they teach you, is red and green is yellow, we have yellow. Okay, this is all, again, this is all straightforward. This is, remember, this is additive mixtures. We are adding two, and what's actually happening with these two mixtures? When we talk about an additive mixture, our eye gets the multiple wavelengths of color. So in this case, our eye would receive the red and green wavelength, and it's our eye itself that combines these two colors to mix the yellow. It's a process that happens in our brain, mixing the yellow. In a subtractive process, the process of mixing is external to the eye. The mixing actually occurs on the surface. And we'll we'll discuss that a little bit more in a moment. All you need to know for lights, lights are always additive. You add more and more lights, you get white in the center, and then you add the primaries together and you get the primaries actually for the subtractive system, which is kind of, of interesting. So blue, green, and red, combinations of those give you yellow, magenta, and cyan. And the way that you know that this is actually true of the subtractive system, if you've ever played with paint or played with Photoshop or um, it's GIMP for Apple users, you can invert the colors of an image. Let's see what happens when we invert the colors of the additive image. You get the subtractive color mixing mixture wheel. So the primaries with the inverted image are cyan, magenta, and red, and they make our secondaries and the subtractive are green, blue, and red, and then in the absence of all light in the center, we get black. Paints mix like this. We talked about behaviors of light. So for instance, that kind of gray-colored wall, um, it doesn't look like it's painted. It looks like it's a felt thing. But let's say it were painted. What would be happening in that mixture in the paints is that the gray, every light other than the gray is absorbed and the gray is reflected back to your eye. It's an external process that's happening on the actual surface where the paint is. Now color mixing with pigments, when I say pigment, I simply mean something that gives chroma. And chroma is analogous, you can say chroma is color. So a pigment is something that you use to give something chroma. So ink, paints, dyes, these are all pigments. Mixtures with pigments, mixtures on a surface, are external. The additive light mixtures are internal to your eye and your brain. These with paints and different pigments are external. The mixing happens on the surface. Let's take a look at at what happens. So I just pointed at the wall and said, look at the gray wall. Let's imagine for a second that the walls are, are red. What is happening in this case is you get all of your light shining at the walls. But the wall, if it were red, would be absorbing the green and the blue wavelengths of light and reflecting the red wavelength back into your eye. Same is true with blue, only the blue is reflected back, the other wavelengths are absorbed. And the same is true if you had a composite color like magenta. So do we remember which two primaries in red, green, blue give us magenta? Anybody? Red and blue, exactly. So, so the red and blue lights, basically, you're still getting all of the light shining onto this external surface if we were painted magenta. And what's happening is some of those colors, the red, some of the red and some of the blue, which make this magenta are reflected back to our eye. So we have a specific magenta here in this case. But how do I know that the magenta that I'm seeing is the same as the magenta that you're seeing? I mean, it's one thing to describe a color, and I think we saw that when I was saying, how would you make a muddy yellow uh, a little while ago? I could describe a color extremely differently than you would. We could use different words for it, and probably in our mind's eye, it would be a completely different color. So this creates a problem. And it creates a problem for things like televisions, uh, computers, print devices, printing, posters. If we can't have any good fidelity in representing the color that we see, then we wouldn't have any good image representation at all. So how do we fix that? We fix it by specifying specific values for all of the colors. So this specific hue of magenta would be specified by a series of number values. And those would be universal and consistent across all of the devices that we use so that we can actually create a realistic color, uh, picture of colors in our world. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways is I, I decided, I thought about giving you an assignment. In previous years when this course ran, one of the assignments was using Photoshop. But Photoshop is a great program, unfortunately you have to pay for the license, it can be pretty expensive. So I didn't want you to have to run out and buy Photoshop just for this course. You can actually do this quite easily and and look at color values with your built-in, if you have a Windows uh, machine paint program, if you have a Mac uh, GIMP. This is paint kind of old, it's archaic, we probably don't use it very much anymore. But if you go to choose a color, you will see that you have this sort of color system, which has, again, a continuous spectrum, right? It has all the spectral values. Now if you remember with color, we talked about the three properties that we use to define color. We said that is H, S, V. Hue, saturation, and value. Take a look here, if you can actually read that, it's a little hard to read, but we have hue, saturation, and LUM, luminance, luminosity. Luminosity is just a measure of value. It's another word for value. So value, luminosity, and um, brightness are all used interchangeably. What do we notice with this? Let's select red for a second. Notice that over here we have a listing of our primaries. The computer is using series of red, greens, and blues to represent all of the colors that we can see, which is also how your TV tends to represent them. You have red, green, and blue pixels that combine to make all of the colors that we see. In this particular system, we have hue, saturation, and luminosity values going from 0 to 255. That, that's kind of, sorry, 0 to 255 in our values of primaries. So if we wanted to make, let's say, magenta, it would be pretty easy to think about how to do that, right? We, we just know that red and blue are magenta, so let's increase the red and blue 255, 255, and have the color the um, green be zero, and then you'll get a magenta. So let's actually imagine cyan. Cyan is green and blue, and as you can see in this example over here, the red is zero, the green is 255, and the blue is 255, and that's the color we had. For these two pictures, I'm just showing you basically brightness or luminance. You see the luminosity or the luminance here is zero. In other words, it's black. And the luminosity here is at its maximum, so it's white. That's, uh, that's essentially how Photoshop um, or any paint program will really define colors. And you can experiment with this and play with this yourself and sort of see all the different combinations and how the values go up and down as you move up and down this color diagram. So let's take a look at color mixing. Let's go back to mixing with pigments. We saw the computer and how the computer does it. What if we wanted to mix paint? What if we wanted to get a really good representation of a color we saw in reality? For instance, I'm not sure what you would call this color. It's kind of like gray, blue, something. Again, how do we classify this color in a standard way, and how do we specify exactly how much of each primary goes into making this color? That is where chromaticity diagrams come in. If you were to go to – oh, geez, sorry. I've just remembered, I probably, I think I stopped recording. Let me just double check. No, I'm recording. I'm sure I am. Okay, alright. Recording. Sorry about that. So again, you can see that just characterizing color by names, by descriptive names and using adjectives doesn't really do us any favors. This is a paint company... um, sort of legend of all the different colors they have. But for instance, like purple cow and pansy lavender, uh, sure, whatever, Um, that that would not mean much to you. And it certainly won't mean much to a computer or a device trying to really represent things realistically. So why classify colors so that we can have consistency? and realistic representation of colors that we see in reality and we do it for color matching and we do it for things to be aesthetically pleasing. When I say we, who, who does this, who universally classifies color, well people from all walks of life do it, um, artists, scientists, engineers, manufacturers, paint company, executives, etc., not executives but paint companies do this as well. So there is a body called the CIE, or the Commission on Illuminance. It's French Commission Internationale Déclairage. And uh, they, in 1931, developed a system which can assign and specify any color by a series of values. Let's take a look at how that works. So now that we have the red, green, and blue primaries, this is called tricolorism. Three colors: red, green, and blue. That also corresponds to the cones in our eye: red, green, and blue. So we want to match a value for each of these three colors, and this is a tri-stimulus. It's called a tri-stimulus value. We rely on these kinds of things to to represent things in a clear way. And now that we know that devices do this, can the eye actually distinguish all colors? No, it can't. It has a certain limit, I mean, it can only distinguish maybe about, I think it's 6,000 hues. The rest of it are just so subtle that your eyes cannot distinguish it, and certainly so subtle that a computer and a device cannot distinguish it, and that's again where this color chromaticity diagram comes in, and let's see why. To match colors, people did a lot of experiments in terms of creating a realistic hue. We start out with the three primaries, red, green, and blue, and try and match combinations of those to get the color we want, in this case, yellow. It's a little bit darker, it's not like a pure yellow that you'd expect these colors to combine to form. So how do we specify it? Once we start with our primaries, we just add, additive mixing, we keep adding and adding and adding until we reach the desired amount. That would be nice if it were so straightforward and simple, it is not. Sometimes it seems almost impossible to get the right values. So when they were doing color matching experiments, what they found is, let's say you wanted to make this shade of yellow, they tried and tried and tried to add all kinds of different combinations of red, green, and blue. Nothing worked. Nothing gave them the exact shade that they wanted. There's a reason for this, and the reason goes back to spectral graphs. Remember our spectral graph? that we have on the X, or horizontal axis, are wavelengths. Wavelengths going, in this case, from 400 to 800, so going from red to violet. And then on this scale, we have intensity of light. This blue corresponds to this blue spectral peak. This green corresponds to this green, and the red corresponds to the red. What do you notice about this graph? It's a little strange. Knowing that our zero of the horizontal axis is right here. There's an area here underneath going into the negative values for red. It's almost like subtracting red. And what was found is that to really mix a color properly, sometimes you have to go into the negative values of the primary color. So it's equivalent to subtracting red to get this mix. Well, how do we actually do that? We add that bit of red into the color in the first place. And I'll show you what what I mean by that in a video. This is our chromaticity diagram, which you will probably recognize from last time. Chromaticity diagram, just so you know, has everything from red to blue, all the wavelengths going up and around the outside, the perimeter of the chromaticity diagram. You see this triangle? This triangle will be explained in a moment in better detail in the video, but this is a triangle, within this triangle we have, this is a primary blue, this is the primary green and that's a primary red. So using blue, green, and red, we can only represent truly those colors within this triangle. The rest of these colors, we really can't represent. Let's take a look at that in more detail in the video.
2: And this guy doesn't out talk in the fast. diagram.: There is a region where the red line goes below zero into negative territory. It turns out that not all colors can be matched by red, green, and blue primaries. In this region, a certain amount of red has to be added to the target color before it can be matched by a blue and green mix. Here in the spectrum, you can see that is in the blue-green region. And so what does that mean exactly? Here again is our color matching lab. Showing the color to be matched is cyan at 500 nanometers. No combination of the red, green, and blue primaries we have chosen can be added together to make this match. So in this case, we have to make a change in our setup. We have to move the red line so that we add some red to the test color. Yes, that's a surprise, but that's how this is done. Adding a bit of red changes the test color, bringing it into a region in which it can now be matched by the appropriate amount of red, green, and blue. The amount of red that had to be added to the test color is considered to be in the negative range. That may be confusing at the moment, but it will make more sense by the end of the video. From color matching, we're going to take the next step, which is a move into color space. The great Scottish scientist James Clerk Maxwell is famous for his monumental main work unifying the theories of electricity and magnetism. One of the other things he studied was color. In this photo, he is shown holding a color wheel, the mechanical tool he used to investigate combinations of color. To describe these combinations, he used a mathematical tool called a vector, which is useful in representing a quantity that has more than one dimension. Remember in our color matching lab, we used three primary colors, which were the tri-stimulus values. A color vector is created simply by using these three values to indicate a position on the three-dimensional graph. The three axes, as you might guess, are red, green, and blue. For example, here's a vector extending into color space. The science of color is based on this kind of structure. Here we won't worry about numbers, just the concept. As an example, think of red, green, and blue color values where 1 equals a fully saturated color. That was 255 in the paint color creator from the last video. If you had a color vector with equal amounts of red and green, but no blue, the values would look like 1, 1, and 0. What color would that represent? It's another way of describing what we saw before. Red plus green makes yellow. Another example would be if you had red, no green, and blue, making 1, 0, 1. The resulting color would be magenta. In between, in the space that fills the box, are contained all the colors that can be created by adding red, green, and blue, which is most of the colors we are capable of seeing. And as a reminder, if you mix equal amounts of red, green, and blue, making a 1, 1, 1 vector, you get white. Now the box that represents our basic color space has three dimensions. It's nice in concept, but awkward in practice. It would be easier to use if we reduced this to two dimensions. That's easier to do than you might expect. Here's how it works. We're going to make a plane that goes through one unit on each of the axes. It forms an equilateral triangle. Anywhere on this plane the sum of the three values is one, so this is also called the unit plane. At the end of this section you will see how mapping the tri-stimulus values onto the unit plane is quite a useful way to represent color. Here we are showing the vector for an intermediate color as it pierces the unit plane. Now since this is a plane, only two coordinates are required to specify the location where it pierces the plane. We'll come back to that in a minute. You remember our graph of the tri-stimulus colors used to match the spectrum of colors. You also recall there were negative values which, if we wanted to graph them, would fall outside of our color space box. That's inconvenient. We're going to deal with that now, or rather explain how it was dealt with back in 1931. As we have noted, using red, green, and blue primaries cannot encompass all the colors without using negative values. Further, there is no set of three real primary colors that can do that job. To solve this problem, (coughs) a group of very clever people invented an imaginary set of primaries, naming them x, y, and z. These are imaginary colors that do not actually exist, but that doesn't matter. Since everything is based on numbers, they could do something called a linear transformation, a way of rescaling the numbers to make the graph behave in a more convenient fashion. Here is the transformed tristimulus graph. It looks a lot like the RGB graph, but the negative values are gone. Now, let us map the transformed tristimulus values onto a new unit plane. This one based on the X, Y, and Z values. The transformation was chosen so that the full range of spectral colors now fits into our positive color space and therefore they all fit on the unit plane. Just as a reminder, we are mapping the tri values for the colors of the spectrum. Here we go mapping the vectors in XYZ space where they pass through the unit plane. A vector near the Z axis would be bluish, toward the Y axis would be greenish, and toward the X axis would be reddish. As you trace all the vectors corresponding to the spectral color matches, you trace out a line called the spectral locus. In other words, that line corresponds to the colors of the spectrum mapped onto our color diagram. Contained within this border is a full gamut of colors we are capable of seeing. This color map is called a chromaticity diagram. Here is the diagram presented in two dimensions. Instead of being an equilateral triangle, it is graphed as a right triangle because it is easier to work with. The position of any color is defined by two values, X and Y. The third number from the tri-stimulus values is used to represent luminance. Let's take a closer look at the diagram. The line around the outer edge represents the pure spectral colors with their wavelengths labeled, going from blue on the lower left to green around the top, then yellow and red on the lower right. The line across the bottom crosses through a range of purple colors, mixtures of blue and red that are not in the spectrum, which is why there are no wavelengths labeled. Here is the chromaticity diagram with all the colors filled in. Contained within the figure is the full gamut of colors that we can see, all neatly specified by two numbers, x and y. This model was defined in 1931 by the International Committee on Illuminance. These are the clever people I mentioned before. The initials in French are CIE. The full name of the color map is called the CIE Chromaticity Diagram. Because there's so much going on with the CIE diagram, we'll cover a few features here. More are covered in a separate video dealing just with the diagram. You remember that white was created by the addition of equal amounts of all colors. In this case, equal amounts occurs at x equals one-third and y equals one-third. This is called equal energy white and is an important reference point. We will look at more whites later on. Specifying color that everyone can agree upon is one of the main purposes of creating this system. Let's pick something practical. The color of red in a stoplight is specified by the Institute of Traffic Engineers to have these color coordinates, putting it in a region of highly saturated spectral red. In fact, here are the entire color specifications for traffic lights showing the the allowable range for each color choice. Now, if we want to mix two colors, labeled R and G in the diagram, If they are in equal amounts, the resulting color will be at the midpoint of the line connecting the two colors. With one in the green region and one in the red, the midpoint color turns out is yellow. The same works for the combinations we showed in the additive color mixing, red plus blue and green plus blue. Another item. Take a point on the spectrum. In this case, take blue at about 470 nanometers make a line through white and where it intersects the spectrum on the opposite side is its complement in this case yellow at about 575 another way to view this is that adding blue and yellow together makes white a property of additive complementary colors now let's go back and look at the primaries that were chosen to create the original color matches the wavelengths were 700 nanometers for red 546 per green, for green and 435, 435 for blue. Connect these dots and what do you have? you have? The only colors what that colors can be made using these primaries lie within lines this lines triangle. triangle. Okay.
0: So that was kind of a, a longer explanation. That gives you a clear explanation of exactly what is being done when we have red, green, and blue. And this red, green, and blue triangle, a word that he used in the video was gamut. The gamut is all of the colors that we can see. So the full gamut is the full spectrum of the colors that we can see and produce using the primaries red, green, and blue. And that falls within this triangle. Let's see if I can move on from here. The rest of the video, the video, is, it's, a, it's a very good video. It's a bit slow, but it does give you a very, very clear uh, explanation of all of the, all of the um, concepts that we've been talking about. Let me just go back to here. Okay, so this is our chromaticity diagram, what to take away from this. I will not be asking you each and every... Uh, Uh, sort of combination in the chromaticity diagram, what's important to remember is it's, it's a way to standardize color. It's a way to specify specific values with X and Y coordinates. As he showed in the video, things like traffic lights are standardized to certain CIE values. And remember always that this is the color gamut of blue, green, and red primaries. This is what we can accurately represent. And all of this falling outside of this triangle we can't accurately represent. A metamer is something that he talks about later on in the video, but let's just talk about this now. A metamer is a color that appears to be the same hue as another color, but is achieved by mixing different colors. So you could mix slightly different shades of two colors, or combine maybe even three colors in varying amounts to make one particular color. So a metamer, again, a metamer is just a color that has multiple ways of making it from all of the primaries. It's a color appearing identical to another one by eye, but when you actually mix it to get the colors, there's different paths at which you can use to arrive at that color. Additive color mixture theory, we've talked about this quite a bit. So let's just go over, finally, um, the final points of additive color mixing theory. Please don't stress and don't panic. You'll see that these slides, the last couple slides I'm going to show you, have quite a lot of text on them. They're, They're busy slides. But all of this text is sort of what I've been saying, and so you don't have to be frantically writing down notes the text is all spelled out instead of us having a textbook. This is the purpose of these last few slides that you can read and remember this when you go home and take this to study. So let's quickly um, summarize additive color mixture. So additive color mixture happens with light, It's it's mixtures in which the eye and the brain internally mix the wavelengths of light to create the color that you see. The theory is reliant upon several key ideas of light and mixing of light. We talked about black body radiation and energy being emitted and relating to certain temperatures. All of this is also related to the wave-particle duality nature of light. So our colors that we see in our eye and brain, just as the computer or the TV screen is only able to produce a certain gamut or triangle of colors, The receptors, the photoreceptors in our eye, the cones, which we're going to talk about again in future lectures, have a peak sensitivity wavelength for each of them. They themselves have their own sort of gamut, their own triangle which they're limited to produce these kinds of colors in. So this is what I mean about the text, lots and lots of text, but the main points are Remember that additive is add. You're going to add the colors. The more you add, the closer to white you get. The spectral curves of the light sources may be different. This is what we told metamerism, metamers, colors that are formed in different ways but look the same. So you can have spectral curves that are identical to one another for two colors, or they're different, but you still get the hue at the end that comes out to look the same to us. Uh, We've already said about mixing of colors being the cones in our eyes. And when we do additive color mixture, a key point is, remember this spectrum. We had zero intensity to 100% intensity. If we are mixing different colors additively using the spectrum, it's just a combination of curves adding and adding and adding, so the intensity gets greater. So when you have an additive light mixture, the intensity always ends up being higher. It ends up being brighter than the colors by themselves alone. We can predict additive mixtures as well, again, by using this kind of a spectral diagram. Uh, There's many different ways to arrive at a certain kind of hue, but let's take a look at how we would actually predict. So in the addition of the colors, I've just said it's going to be brighter, it's going to be a higher intensity, but we do cap the intensity at 100%. And finally, let's take a look at how we do this mixing using spectral curves, and how just by looking at a spectral curve, we could predict what kind of color you're going to get. let's, Let's look at this. You can see the spectral diagram, the spectral curve. Blue, green, and red on the x-axis. Intensity from 0 to 100 on the y-axis. So in this case, we're really just mixing two colors. Green at a peak and red. These colors are obviously the different two colors that we're mixing, the red and the green. The black line is a kind of a summative line that we get as we join these two together. So if you had an additive mixture and you were to add these two curves together, you could denote it as an additive line going like this or summing together the two peaks. And we can do that because the red and the green peaks are close to each other, they don't have much separation. And in our eyes, the cones don't have much separation so it comes out kind of like a big blob. But what would the, what, what would the resulting color of that be? It's red and it's green. Yellow, yeah, exactly. So, that's, so this is what we call, you know, the metamer effect, is that this spectral curve, it looks different from this spectral curve, but we're mixing two colors, and this, indeed, is going to be yellow. So they're both equivalent ways, the black curves, which are the summation of the individual red and greens, these are both equivalent ways of basically telling us what this addition will give us. And again, these two peaks can be combined because you notice on the x-axis they're close to each other, they're beside each other. We can actually combine them because as well the cone receptors are beside each other, so it's not a big difference, we can combine them this way. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. What about this? We had the ones close together, the green and the red. In this case, we've got blue at one end of the spectrum and red at the other end of the spectrum. Those aren't adjacent. They aren't together. And the cone receptors, which peak at different wavelengths, um, really have a hard time with the, the different contrasts. So we don't really put them together. Let's take a look. What do you think that this mixture would be if we're doing additive mixtures? Blue? Yeah, magenta. I heard magenta. Exactly. So this is magenta. So in this case, you know how I said that the peaks were adjacent? In this case, the peaks have a wide separation between them, and we do not join them. So we have this black line of two peaks. There's a reason for this, and we will get into that more when we do the anatomy of the eye and how the eye perceives color. But the reason is you have three different photoreceptors that basically are sensitive to red, green, and blue. They're sensitive to peak wavelengths, and they also operate by playing off contrast of one another. So additive color, when we go back to additive color finally, Here's our additive color primaries, red, blue, green, mixing to create the secondaries and adding all to get white. Just remember, anytime we're talking about a system, we're talking about additive, we're talking about subtractive, but a lot of the time, this is just convention that we're using primaries. A primary is defined as any set of three colors that can c- combine to produce all colors we just happen to use red, green, and blue. And on the color wheel, we use red, yellow, and blue, which was the painter's primary. Additive mixing gamut, I've talked about that quite a bit. Um, This, again, all of the text is for for you to take home and take a look and read, but there's nothing on here that we haven't really talked about, aside from the fact there aren't unique absolute primaries in a perfect world. Any three colors that, pr- that can produce all the colors can be used as primaries. It's convention that we use red, green, and blue. The slide is a little bit more involved, and all I'm trying to show on this slide here is we talked about cones, which are the color photoreceptors in the eye. Now, we have different cones that are sensitive to red, green, and blue, and this continuous spectrum shows you exactly the red, green, and blue wavelengths that each cone is sensitive to. So we have three cones. One for looking at short wavelengths, one for looking at medium wavelengths, and one for looking at long wavelengths. And here are the spectral peaks of each of those cones. Okay, so then this is what we do. We use to demonstrate additive mixing. Now, let's take a look at subtractive mixing. Sorry, there's one more example. Um, We're going to show you yellow and blue. And again, because these are kind of close, three curves spread evenly across the spectrum, we can join these curves together. So both black lines, showing this sort of clump of color here, are equivalent ways of getting, and what are we getting? We're getting each, a peak in each of the three colors, so that means white. More examples, you don't need any more examples, I think you're exampled out by now, but um, mixing green and cyan, uh, and you can, again, try this with your own computer programs, take a look at the green, red, blue number values, and you can see which kinds of colors that you can mix. So just remember that the maximum intensity is 100%. There are lots of inconsistencies in mixing together additive colors. There are true profiles. There are false profiles. The fact that we have all these different receptors in cones makes us perceive it differently. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about cones. Key to remember is all of our colors, all of our spectral curves are approximations. Of the true color so subtractive color mixing theory remember we're talking about absorbing light things like paints things like pigments when we have the subtractive color mixing you get sort of the absence of light and you have the surface absorbing the light it's not really a great system in terms of representing colors truly It is a one size fit all attempt basically at predicting surface mixtures. We can try and predict these basically by looking at curves again. And when we look at curves, instead of the addition of those curves for additive mixtures, we'll be subtracting those color curves. But first, a note on substance uncertainty. When you're trying to predict something, if I painted this red and I painted, say, the blackboard red, it may look slightly different because of the chemical interactions occurring. So, because of what you're actually painting on and the mixing happens externally, you have inconsistencies. And that is all that surface uncertainty talks about. It also talks about the fact that you can illuminate something in a different color light. And that's what Uh, One of you had asked about CRI values um, in film. The CRI value really, as I understand it, speaks to the ambient light. So if you light something in blue light, something that's blue is going to look kind of black. It's going to change the color that you perceive. Subtractive primaries are cyan, magenta, and yellow. We have different responses with our rods and cones. Subtractive primaries can be defined in these ways. So at the top, the reflectance curves are here what we want for our optimal paints. The second column here is showing our responses with our cone sensors, the short wavelength, medium wavelength, and long wavelength sensors. And finally, the last is the perceived colors and how it combines how different our paint colors are from what our eyes can see from what our actual perceived colors are. Quickly to do a a short example on how to combine, sorry, how to subtract attractive color mixing curves. There aren't any perfect primaries, we use cyan, magenta, and yellow, but they can't create all the colors, as we've already seen in the additive system. And let's try and predict some subtractive mixtures, but that's going to be hard because of the surface effects, and because of the ambient light that's shining on something. So remember that the mixing in this case happens externally, and what you see as reflected is the color that you will see in your eye. Subtractively mixing red and green, okay. Here's the green, here's the red, and since we're subtractively mixing, the curves subtract and give you this black curve. So only these mutually reflected wavelengths are left behind, these in the black curve that give you a a sort of a peak between the green and the red. And what we see is a really muddy brownish black. It's going to be darker than the original colors. We're talking about reflectance here as opposed to intensity. Remember we're talking in an additive color mixing about intensity of light coming in. And now we're talking just about reflectance from zero to 100%. Here's another example with cyan and yellow. It mixes to subtract and give you this peak in the red color. Again, it's going to be a really dull, dull red because you're losing reflectance. These curves subtract and you have a very sort of smaller area under the curve where you lose the reflectance and you're going to see darker colors. So finally, if we summarize all of this, what are the takeaway points that we want? you know. So the additive mixtures applies only to light. Subtractive mixing applies to pigments. It's something that's done externally. With additive mixtures, the mixing happens internally. It happens in our eyes, and the rods and cones making making sense of all the different colors, and the brain getting the messages is what allows us to see certain colors. Whereas in subtractive color, the mixing happens externally on the surfaces. Your eye and your brain are not interpreting anything for the wavelength directly reflected into your eye. It's easier to predict additive color mixing as you saw. And remember that the additive color mixtures, when you add colors together, they get brighter and brighter because you get more and more intensity capped at 100%. Subtractive mixtures, not so easy. It depends on the surface you're mixing on, and it depends as well on the primaries which aren't so great, cyan, magenta, and um, yellow, to mix every kind of color. So all the wavelengths, when we're mixing two colors and subtractives, subtract. So you typically get darker duller uglier colors and finally that would be the final point is in an additive system think of lights combining together the mixture is much brighter it's more intense in a subtractive system since we're taking away color the mixtures tend to be a lot darker and duller and that is all you will ever have to know about additive and subtractive uh, color systems for the course. Um, Next week, I promise it will be more exciting. We're moving on to photons and energy transitions and uh, the dynamics of, of atoms. So have a good weekend.